0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hello, hey, Here's the from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth
0: Reinhardt of The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 15th. Today, what reparations did for the descendants of a massacre and what they didn't do.
1: You ask the when you asked your grandmother
2: questions, when you called me,
1: <laughs> what did you? What did you want to know?
2: I wanted to know more about her dad, and I wanted to know more about the survivors who came over here with them because like, there are other families in Riviera Beach,
1: and like we don't even talk to them, but they all came over here together. This story is about a woman named Morgan Carter.
2: Rosewood is not talked about, and there are several families of descendants
1: in West Palm Beach. She's a Ph.D. student at Florida A&M University.
2: Like, I hate to sound ungrateful, but, like, the reparations didn't do much,
1: you know? And she's there on scholarship because her family endured this horrible incidence of racial terror in a town called Rosewood.
0: Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post,
1: in 1923, this was a mostly black mill town deep in the backwoods of North Florida. The people there, they worked in lumber, they worked in turpentine, they did super well for themselves. And on New Year's Day, something really terrible happened. An all-white mob came to the town and they burned the town to the ground.
0: Why did they do that?
1: There was an allegation from a white woman in a nearby town that a black man had assaulted her. Now, there's lots of speculation whether or not that allegation was true, but the word spread and the people in the all white town believed that the assailant was somewhere hiding in Rosewood. So they took some torches and dogs and they went to go look for the man. Morgan Carter's great grandfather, Orrin Monroe, was a child when the white mob came to the town. He was in a house with a bunch of other women and children. And when the mob came, they fled. And as the town burned, they hid in the swamp, walked to a train station, and they ran away, never to return again.
0: And so in the process of mobbing the town, did people die?
1: At least six African-Americans died.
0: And then what happened to the town?
1: The town was basically wiped off the map. Almost every structure was burned to the ground. All the people who lived there fled. And they lost a good deal of property. These were not Black folks who are struggling. They had two-story houses. They had organs and pianos and lace curtains. They had lots of prosperity. And they had dreams for their kids.
0: So the story of what happened in Rosewood... When did Carter first become aware of that? And what was her kind of understanding of that story when she was a child?
2: The only person in my family who discusses this is my grandma. None of her siblings speak about it. Her dad didn't talk about it.
1: Well, when she was a little girl during Black History Month, her grandmother would sit her down and tell her about her great-grandfather, Oren Monroe.
2: It wasn't, like, a voluntary thing. We weren't asking. You were taught, like... You needed to
1: know. When the Rosewood incident first happened in 1923, it was on the front pages of newspapers. It occurred over six days. And there was a lot of consciousness about it. But over time, that story faded. And it faded because of a few things. One was the embarrassment of the people who participated. They didn't want to tell this story again. And second was the shame of the people who were victimized by it. They left everything they had. They had no wealth. And they didn't want their families to carry on the same hatred and resentment that they had for white people. And so in many families, they never talked about it. They never said anything. And in the few instances when A person who was there, who was a survivor of this incident, would confess to their families, this is why I'm so sad, this is why I'm so resentful. They always told their children not to say anything, not to talk about it. And so over time, it was wiped away from Florida's history.
0: So Morgan Carter, she is the recipient of a scholarship that was part of what happened after Rosewood. How did that come about?
1: Nearly 70 years after the incident happened, the descendants of the Rosewood families decided they were going to try to sue the state of Florida to get reparations. We want the state of Florida to give reasonable recognition, and reasonable recognition includes saying something and putting something in the hands of those 56 people that we're talking about. They contacted a lawyer who said a lawsuit might be a little bit tricky, but maybe we could pass a bill, maybe we could pass a law.
3: Are we ready to begin with your first witness? We are. Okay, and who's that going to be? I'd like to call Minnie Lee Langley. Mrs. Langley, are you here?
1: In February 1994, the survivors would ultimately testify in a special hearing.
3: Mrs. Langley, uh, I'm going to start with the toughest question I'm going to ask you all day. How old are you? 80. 80 years old? And when were you born?
4: 1913
0: July 4th. And what did they say at these hearings?
1: They're really interesting. You know, it's from 1994, so the audio is very grainy. So in
3: 1923, you would have been about 10 years old. Is that right? Yes. Yes.
1: But there's this prosecutor named Stephen Hanlon. His lead witness was a woman named Minnie Lee Langley.
3: What's the first thing you remember about what happened when the trouble came?
4: Well, I was. Upstairs with the other children, always
3: upstairs under the bed. Well, why were you? Why were you and all the children upstairs under the bed? Was well,
4: in- People were shooting in that house, and they told us to go. because biggest brother was supposed to go the corner in
3: Okay. Was this? Uh, what house was this? House. Sarah Carrier's house. Eric yeah. Carrier's house.
1: Now, Minnie Lee Langley is not in Morgan Carter's bloodline, but she was in the home with. Morgan's great grandfather, Orrin Monroe, when the mob came.
3: What happened next? Did you all get out of there?
4: Yeah, we had to leave. Then, boy, we wasn't going to let nobody kill us in you know? there.
3: Was the gunfire still coming when you? Yeah, they're still coming. Well, what'd you all do?
1: They were so scared that they started to flee for the woods.
3: Was it cold? Oh, yeah. How were you dressed? Naked. <laughs> well, you don't mean naked. We you didn't
4: had you no clothes.
3: You have a nightie on? No,
4: we had a gown on, that's
3: all. Just a little gown? Okay. Now, who all got out of there?
4: Well, all of the children there, 12 of us. About 12 About 13. 12 children?
3: Oh, right. did you have an adult with you?
4: No, not then. Where'd you go? Well down that back road, went to Wiley. How long did it take you to
3: walk down to Wiley?
4: About 30 minutes or 40
3: minutes to go to Wiley. Were you walking through any swamp?
4: Yeah. Bushes? We had to go through the swamp and crack us down there. Something going on, man. We couldn't walk on
3: the road. Okay. All right. All right.
1: And for three days and three nights, she and these kids were in the woods, in the swamp, hiding under bushes, watching fires in the town they loved, trying to figure out what they were going to do next and how they were going to get home.
3: You think your mama died of the Rosewood?
4: Yes, cause. Upper and her sister, both of them got killed on it. My granddaddy it made mean, my granddaddy dug his grave when shot him back within him the grave
1: and those survivors talked about not only the fear that they had that day but the lingering effects of that that fear that they never filed for a claim because they didn't want anyone to come after them that they were witnesses and parties to a murder, and how much that haunted them.
3: Why didn't you? Why did you come forward and file a claim against the state?
4: I didn't know how to file no claim. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, I didn't know how. Did you have any? And concerns? I didn't try to file no claim because I'm scared them crackers might come up there and find me, kill me up there. I ain't filed no claim. Ain't tried to. I just went to work for my living.
1: Some of the most searing testimonies, which came up pretty casually, was when they started talking about their hopes and their dreams. Lee Langley told the story about how when she was growing up, she wanted to be a nurse. That was her dream. And her grandmother and her grandfather, who were raising her, they told her they were going to help her. Lee Langley grew up and could only work in a brush factory.
3: After 32 years, did you get a pension?
4: No, they don't pay. They won't pay anymore.
1: She grew up to live in a ramshackle Jacksonville home with nothing to her name.
0: What did the Florida legislature decide to do?
1: The Florida legislature agreed to pay living survivors $150,000 because of the damage they suffered in Rosewood. There are nine living survivors who received that money, that amount, the full reparation. If descendants of people who lived in Rosewood could prove that they had families who were property owners, they were eligible to receive some additional funds. But the money, once it was divided between all of the people who were descendants, they got something a little bit more than a tax refund, about one to $2,000.
0: And were they thinking about any other ways to try to have more of a long-term effect on the people whose lives had been affected by what happened in Rosewood?
1: Well, when they were deciding how much money should be given, I think everyone knew that this would not satisfy anyone. So they came up with one last idea. And that idea was to provide free college tuition to anyone who was a descendant of a family who lived in Rosewood. If you were a descendant, you could go to a Florida college tuition-free.
0: And over the years, how many people used those scholarships?
1: As of September, 297 people had used the Rosewood scholarship. That's more people than ever lived in Rosewood.
0: Hmm. And one of those people was Morgan Carter. That's right. How did the scholarship affect Morgan's life?
1: For Morgan, the effect on her life really was the type of life that she grew up in. Her mother, Natasha Twiggs.
2: When all this was going on, she was like, hey, you need to apply for this scholarship. Because at the time, I had to stop going to school, but I need to go back. She knew I need to finish.
1: Was the first person in her family to use the scholarship. Now that,
2: I can definitely say, if you right. look at the dynamics of mm-hmm. the reparations and how it affected our family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once we received it, we have definitely utilized it and we do make
1: sure that that's something that's important. Like I say, education is important. Right. That facilitated her to become a teacher and then a high school administrator. And that led to a more stable life than Natasha Twiggs had and her grandmother had, and certainly one that was more stable than her great grandfather had. And now Morgan is a woman of incredible ambition. She's in this really competitive six year PhD program. But if you speak to her about what this scholarship means, she has a lot of conflicts about it. Therein is the power of like education and like supporting it through the scholarship. So, like, it's like, well, it helped to alter our family's like, no.
2: But it didn't, though. And I just, I'm saying that it didn't simply because. I feel like this would have been my reality regardless. Like, whether or not I had the Rosewood Scholarship, I would still be in school. I would still be getting my doctorate pharmacy. This is just aiding, but it's not a determining factor. Like, I cannot say that this Rosewood Scholarship is changing my life
1: because it hasn't. She does not see it as... A way for the government to make things better. Her life growing up was pretty good. So she sees the flaws in it.
2: I get I wanna say it's like fifteen hundred a semester, maybe two thousand a semester when all my total fees add up to like six. So granted you're helping pay the my tuition, but so is Bright DJs. Like it's appreciated.
1: But it's not much, like... So more could have been done
2: because of the trauma that your family More
1: should have been done. And she sees it as, she says it's a very tiny olive branch for the pain that her family has suffered.
0: And do people talk about this? I mean, do they talk about it in their family, the people who have received the scholarship? No, no.
1: They find it to be too hard to talk about. They get nervous that... The person who listens to the story won't understand. And for a college student like Morgan in a place where lots of people are trying to get more money, sometimes it can feel like an embarrassment to her. Why? That she's in college and she's getting this extra scholarship because something terrible happened to her great-grandfather. There's blood on her diploma. And it's something that she takes very seriously, and she holds to her heart.
2: We can't just be out here doing whatever, like, in vain of, like, of our ancestors. Like, everyone can't say that when their great-granddad was eight years old, like, he almost drowned in the swamp because of, like, because of racism, you know? Like, you always have to be the best and prove a point simply because of who you are and what your family
0: has gone through. But the fact that this is a form of reparations where clearly it's had an incredibly positive effect on a lot of people's lives, especially when it comes to the scholarship, but it also brings a sense of shame or embarrassment or, or at least complicated feelings. What do you think that says about reparations as a concept?
1: I think there's a very large question in this country about what reparations will actually do. And in talking with Morgan Carter specifically, something became clear to me. One was this idea that you need to say you're sorry. And I think for most of the families that we spoke with, that act of apology really meant something to them. And it meant even more that the state or the government did something to show they were sorry. But I think there's this other part of reparations, which is this feeling that if you have this act of contrition, it will solve things. That it would if not erase, it would mitigate the suffering and the trauma that families have endured who have been victimized. And in the case of Rosewood, That wasn't true. The pain still lingered. And because of that, it's a complicated path if you're looking for reparations to actually solve a societal ill.
0: Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. It for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Swarnowski, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stall. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.